You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Good morning. It's good to see you, Annette, and our team. We have a team that headed up to Seattle. They're working for EventForce, raising money for our internship, and so we are very, very thankful we get those opportunities. That's just another way to invest in, in, uh, in the generation that's coming up. So we want to continue to do that. Well, by the way, speaking of generations coming up, uh, Ryan mentioned this already. Uh, last week in one of the Sunday school classes, they had 43 kids. So we do need your help. And they're actually handing this out to our parents. The reason I'm bringing this to your attention is because this is a way that Renee and her team have brought families together. So when you go home, you have a, a child, a grandchild, you can pull this out and talk to them about the lesson that they've learned the lesson you just heard in this building. And so today it's John chapter 4, and they give a lesson out of John chapter 4. Your kids, if you have them there in, uh, in the Sunday school classes, you're going to hear about this. This is going to be a great thing for families to come together to talk about the same stories, learn some of the same lessons. It is absolutely amazing, and so I'm thankful for that. Again, it's so good to be with everybody this morning. What I want to do is let's pray before we dive into the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. Father, we want to thank you today. <clears throat> we want to thank you for the work that you're about in our lives, in our families, and we just pray the Holy Spirit blessing would rest upon us today and that you would open our eyes, our ears, so that we can see and hear what the Holy Spirit is doing and how you're teaching us and where you're leading us. So we are so thankful, grateful today that we're gathered here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray and we say, <clears throat> Amen. When I was growing up, my uncle was a linesman. And for those that might not be familiar with the term, uh, just simply put, a guy who climbs telephone poles. And so I always thought that he was pretty cool. I mean, when anyone climbs anything that's over 10 feet high, it's a pretty cool thing. And so I was growing up with this guy and, and even thought for a while that, that I might do this, that I might pick up that same occupation because my uncle was just that kind of guy. But the more I got into what it really took and what it required, uh, the less interested I became uh, because I found out that you really have to shimmy up about 40 to 50 feet to fix whatever needs to be fixed. And that, that kind of swayed me in another d d direction to where I could actually keep my feet on the floor like this right here. And so I, I thought, well, that, but it's still so cool. And I asked him, what do you do? How does this all work? He said, well, what happens is we give you this equipment. And what you're given is what you have to trust in. As a linesman, you have to trust in your equipment. And so they give you a harness. They give you these boots that have spikes in them. And they tell you to go up the, the telephone pole and fix whatever needs to be fixed. So a special harness, special shoes, all of those kinds of things. And then they tell you to do this. And this is where I decided I would seek out another occupation. You have to lean back in the harness. So when you're up 40 to 50 feet, you have to lean back. Now, everything in me says that's wrong. Everything in me says you hold on to what's in front of you as tight as you can because you do not want to fall when you're up that high. But that's what they tell you to do. You lean back in the harness. That's counterintuitive. When I heard him say that, I said, what? Now, I'm not going to do that. You should lean and hold on to things that are right in front of you. You, you, you want to trust in the, the equipment. That's what they tell you. Trust in the equipment. So 
my instincts tell me not to do that. But I can tell you this. I think that, uh, that every linesman has had one opportunity where they didn't trust in their equipment and they had a splintery ride down the pole. And most people in that occupation say it only takes one time before you learn the lesson, as you can imagine. So they need to be able to lean back. So today, what we're going to talk about is in John chapter 4 and in verses 43 to 54, it's a story about faith. Because that's what we're talking about today. Just like a linesman needs to have faith in their equipment. They need to know that you can lean back and trust what's holding you in place. Today we get to look at what real faith looks like. What is authentic faith? What is growing faith? That's the story. Not a superficial faith, the kind of faith that Warren Wiersbe calls unsaved believers who love the miracles but didn't quite take to Jesus didn't quite take to the mission of Jesus. So this is about a man who has a sick son. He asks Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus does that. All the while, what Jesus is doing is he's pushing the man back into the harness to trust him. He's just telling the man all along in this conversation, just keep leaning, leaning back, and trust in me. Sound familiar? I'm thinking there might be some of us here this morning that might be in the same place where the Holy Spirit is instructing you, just trust me, just lean back, just trust me and have faith. I know, I know that's true about my life. Uh, I know that's true in the test that I have and the journey that I'm on. It's always about trusting in Jesus because my natural inclination is to hold on to what's in front of me. My natural inclination is to hold on to what I perceive as the answer that will keep me from falling. And in the story today, there are a few things that this nobleman we'll read about could have held on to. There are a few things that he could have just taken a hold of and, and held on and never really learned the lesson that Jesus wanted to teach him. So when you look at this and you're suspended 50 feet in the air and you have to lean back and you want to hold on what's in front of you, the three things that you see in this story, it's going to be implied and directly stated. One is self-righteousness. Uh, you could choose to be self-righteous, hold on, and not lean back. You could choose to be offended because there's something that Jesus tells this man that would probably offend most of us. And then the third thing that we want to hold on to at times is not just our um, self-righteousness, not just our offense, but our own pain. When we go through pain, we want to lean into that. And I, I, I know that that, that that's not a natural thing to do. It's not something that we always talk about. But there are times that we lean into our pain, and that's a comfort for us. That's a place that we're familiar with, and so we want to stay there. This is true about the man that we meet today. All of those things he could have done. It's difficult to trust the Lord with our lives, to trust the Lord with our self-righteous attitudes, our offenses, our pain. But we see that taking place here in this story, where a man just begins to lean into Jesus, to follow Jesus. And right before our very eyes, he grows in his faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the story tells us, beginning, beginning at verse 43 and going through to verse 54. It says this, Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, 
where he had turned the water into wine. You remember that story? And there was a certain royal official or a nobleman whose son lay sick in Capernaum or Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was alive. His boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, it was yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon. The fever just left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. I love that. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to or from Judea to Galilee. The first sign, remember, was the water turning into wine. We find Jesus back again in Cana. The best thing that we can come up with is he had friends there. He had family there. Oftentimes, the theologians will tell us this was actually John, the one writing this gospel. This was his hometown. And so Jesus was coming and going from a lot of different places. But what we do know is Capernaum was his home base. So this passage tells us that this man is a, a royal official or a nobleman, depending on your translation. What is a nobleman? Uh, we don't hear about that a lot today, and so we're kind of left to guess at what a nobleman really is. So here's the big question. He works for the king, so what does he do? So a nobleman is somebody that works for a king. And then the next question is, say, what, what does he do? What does a nobleman do for the king that he, that he works for? And who was the king around Galilee at that particular time? It's interesting because the king would have had to have been a guy named Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Most of us remember Herod the Great. We remember that Herod the Great was the one who tried to extinguish the lives of newborn babies, thinking that the Messiah was one of them, that was Jesus. And remember, the family of Jesus had to flee to Egypt because of Herod's edict. This is his son. And so these guys don't really get better as generations go on. You hope they do, but they really don't. Well, Herod, Herod Antipas, had his headquarters not in Capernaum because Capernaum had no noble people living there. There was a town of about 1,500 to 2,000 people. It was a fishing village. Where would he have resided? Where would he have lived? Well, he would have lived in Tiberias. Tiberius was actually the headquarters for the area of Galilee, the Galilean region. It was the headquarters for uh, the Roman uh, government, the Roman Empire. He would have been in this place. This is where he would have, uh, have worked out of. He was a nobleman, and he worked for Herod Antipas. And what we see in this is the nobleman goes through stages of spiritual growth. He goes through this process of development. It's almost imperceptible when you read it at first, but when you pay closer attention, you pull it apart, you see places that he is growing. By what Jesus says to him and what he says to Jesus, we see this faith growing. He meets Jesus in one stage of his faith, but he leaves Jesus in a totally different place. So here's, here's what I want us to do. 
let's look at three true and timeless lessons from this nobleman's encounter with Jesus. I was reading through this story, and I thought, man, there are, there are three or four things here that, that we could actually go away with, that we can apply to our own lives, because really, it's not a lot different now than it was back then. And so we go after this, and we look at it and think, okay, what are the things that I can, that I can make real to me right now? What are the things that, that, that God is inviting me into right now? So this is about how God develops faith in us. Number one is this. Life can be hard. It drives us to Jesus. Life can be hard. It drives us to Jesus. This man came to Jesus. Why? For one reason. One reason and one reason only. He wanted his son healed. He's a pragmatic. He's a nobleman. He knows how to get things done. He knows what strings to pull. He knows whose backs to scratch. He knows all of these things. And so he's used to seeing things done. And so what does he do? He seeks out Jesus. Because the word's already out there. The word is already out there that Jesus does these kinds of things. And so what happens is he goes 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana. Uh, this man is desperate. He's absolutely de desperate because his son is on his deathbed. But the trip from Capernaum to Cana was only part of the journey. There's part of this journey that isn't even mentioned here. And it's the thing that we have to conclude, that he went through more than we see on these pages in these words. Because if he's from Tiberias, if this is where he is residing with, with King uh, Herod Antipas, he had to put his son in a boat in Tiberias. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And go across Galilee. And so the journey would have been about 10 or 12 miles. I, I have a little uh, picture here. You can kind of get an idea. Uh, they, they, here's where we're at. Let me see if I can get that up there. There's Tiberius. See that? And you're taking a, a trip right up to Capernaum. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long. And so he's taking that trip. He's going up there. But he's got the sick son, the sick son in, in his boat. And so he gets there. Can you imagine to his astonishment and great disappointment Jesus isn't there he hears that this is the hometown of Jesus so what does he do he goes to Capernaum he finds out he's not there he leaves his son in Capernaum and he heads out to Cana now I want you to use your imagination with me just for a moment because this was intriguing to me it was intriguing because where would you leave a dying son you would want to make sure that he was in good hands you want to make sure that he's taken care of so i'm sure the nobleman had an idea where jesus lived he went to the home of jesus and knocked on the door that was peter's mother-in-law's house <clears throat> knocked on the door looking for jesus what does he do he most likely leaves him in the care of peter's mother-in-law and this family of, of believers of people who love who love jesus who follow jesus so he leaves him there and he takes off to canaan and he's looking for Jesus. He wants to find Jesus. Now, noblemen did not, again, live in Capernaum. They, they lived in another place. They lived in Tiberias. And so this man puts his son in a boat, takes him across, leaves him here in Capernaum. So he gets there, and he heads out. He heads out to Cana to find Jesus. Now, when he gets to Cana, he finds Jesus, and he begs him. He says, listen, would you go back with me? I'm desperate. Uh, I don't know, maybe even he said he'd pay his way. Maybe he said, I'll give you a little money. I, I have some pretty good horses you can ride. But whatever we do, we need to get back. 
And I, I think every parent in this room, every grandparent in this room knows exactly what this feels like. When uh, you have a sick child, when you have a hurting child, uh, the desperation is uh, enormous. I don't think it goes away with age either, the age of your children. Uh, I think we feel, many of us feel the same way about our adult kids. Uh, we always hurt for them. And I know that when my kids, my grandkids are sick or they're hurting, uh, it wouldn't even take me a, a moment to think about exchanging places with them. That that's what I'd want to do, you know, as a father. It's what I would want to do as a grandfather is I would take their place. I would do it in, in an instant. And so this man is, is feeling this, this pressure, and we know his plight, and we would trade places with them, our kids, in, in just a moment. Uh, my, my second child, Ryan, he's uh, an adventurous type. He's, a, he's an athlete. All the kids were athletes, but he was one that went to the extremes. And I, I remember one day I was here at church. Ryan was probably 13 or 14 years old. And my wife calls me, and she's panicked. She never really calls me at work, and she calls, and you could just hear the panic in her voice, and she could hardly pull herself together. She couldn't hardly say what she needed to say, but she just got out. Ryan is really hurt, and we need to get him to the hospital. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's what I heard, and no explanation. And I said, I'll meet you right out in front. Do we need an ambulance? She goes, no, I think he's fine that way, but he's really hurt. And so I met them right out here in the parking lot and, and Ryan had his arm all wrapped up what he had done he was skateboarding and he was trying to do tricks and when he was doing tricks he actually came down on some sheet metal and caught his arm on the sheet metal it's pretty gross it's called a glove tear and it just took took the skin away and so he pulls up and here's my son he's looking at me as I'm coming to the car his mom is right here panicked I mean she's white as a sheet and I look at my son, and he's looking at me, and he's looking at his mom, and he's going, she's nuts. She's nuts, Dad. you got to drive. So I get in the car and drive them. And on the way there, I'm just talking to him, and I'm thinking to myself, I, 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 would, I would have that happen to me. I would rather have that happen to me than it would happen to my son. Uh, I felt helpless watching my child suffer uh, just like this man had to feel helpless. So the question is, is how many have been driven to Jesus because you had nowhere else to go? Many of us in the room have been driven to Jesus because we have nowhere else to go. This is the case this man's facing right now. He has nowhere else to go. He has the thing that he loves the most. He has a precious son, and he can only think about going to Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we do when we're in those situations is pray. Doesn't matter what our relationship with God is, even if we have one, we typically pray. We just pray, and we pray, and we pray. My prayers are pretty simple. Jesus, help me. Please help me right now. I remember feeling that kind of desperation. Right after we left the church we came from, and before we really got here, we were in this kind of limbo place with a church home, a church family. Uh, my wife uh, was pregnant, and she had a, a miscarriage during this time. And I think the thing that was horrifying to us was not only the miscarriage, but it was the high risk of cancer that came with this kind of miscarriage. We didn't know anybody. We left the, the, the families that we knew behind us. We were just engaging here in this church. And I can say, in that moment of, of, of desperation for us, uh, one of the first lessons we learned is life is hard and it drives us to Jesus. 
And that's exactly what we did. We went to Jesus. We prayed. And so many of us here was our first bonding experience in this church was under this kind of duress. We bonded. But what do we do when life is hard? You go to Jesus. You know, we see so many people come to faith in Jesus who are going through very difficult times. In fact, I I may be speaking to some of you today, as I've spoken earlier, some of us are going through those moments, and we're thinking, I don't know, I don't have anywhere else to go. Uh, you're going through things uh, now um, that you know you're way over your head. Um, you're, you're just way in over your head. And you are being invited during these seasons and during this time, you're being invited to Jesus. That's what's happening. These things are intended to drive us to Jesus. He's not being mean. He's not being harsh. It's just life. Life is hard. It's things that we go through. And Jesus is just asking you to come to him. David said that. David said that in Psalm 119, verse 67. Listen to this. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. (laughs) But now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Isn't that true about the journey of life? I mean, before uh, I was afflicted, I was wandering. I I was astray, but now I'm afflicted, and I'm pressing in to find Jesus. When life really gets hard, it's in this place that you find uh, very few atheists, (laughs) very few unbelievers. I don't find very many unbelievers in ICU wards. I don't find unbelievers in emergency wards. I don't find unbelievers there. And by the way, just in the last week, I've gone to an ICU two times, and there what happens most is prayer. What's happening most there is, is prayer. And that's what, that's what people ask from me, is that I would just pray with them. So I think about what was going on in this man's heart. Remember, he's a nobleman. He's highly respected. This man could have taken a self-righteous approach as a nobleman and said, listen, I can handle this on my own. I can do this the way that I want to do it. I have other places I can go, other people I can see. But he didn't take that approach. The Bible shows us here just the act of going to Jesus. He's humbling himself. And by the way, that is the entry point of experiencing miracles with Jesus Christ in your life is humbling yourself. Not thinking that you're the smartest person in the room. Not letting pride get in the way. Uh, not, Not letting... Uh, you think that you have all the answers, get in the way. Here what we find out is this man avoids the trap of being self-righteous, even in his station in life. And if anyone could have been that way, it would have been this guy. It would have been a nobleman. And so here's the second lesson from this encounter with Jesus. Jesus can say some pretty surprising things. He wants us to grow. He can say some pretty surprising things And the reason why is he wants you and me to grow. See, when this man finally comes to Jesus, Jesus says something to him that I don't think he really expected Jesus to say to him. I think he might have had some other ideas about what Jesus would say. But here Jesus says something that I I think would probably bend us a little bit as well. It's in verse 48. It says this. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Wow. That's, uh, that's straight up. Um, that, that, can, that can bend you in a, in, in a wrong way. But when I read this, I would have to say that out of the sayings of Jesus, I would nominate this verse to be in the top five surprising things Jesus said. 
because I, I wouldn't have expected that same thing to be said to me either. What's he avoiding here? What does he choose to avoid? This man chooses, he chooses to avoid being offended by the words of Jesus. Because what Jesus says, I mean, when you say you, you, you people are all the same. I mean, imagine what you would feel like. You people all think the same way. You all do the same thing. You just want, you want your bellies full. You just want to see miracles. You want to, have, you want to be entertained. Now, what he's doing is when he first looks at the man, it's a singular address. Then he opens it up and he's talking to everybody in the crowd because there was a crowd by now. And he's saying, this is what you guys do. You keep doing this. I was here not too long ago. I turned the water into wine and you guys are still following me around to see the same thing. There's no wine today. Bar is closed. What Jesus does is he tests this man's resolve. This is pretty surprising. And I'm sure that this man um, didn't expect to hear this. The, the nobleman, again, could have thought, are, are you kidding me? I mean, I've come all this way. My son is dying, and this is what Jesus is saying to me. This guy's rude. Why is he talking to me like this? You know, when I read this passage, I, I paused. And, and the reason I did is because I realized that there were uh, other places, a lot of other places, where Jesus said things that were surprising. Maybe you can think of a few yourself. Some things that he said would crash right into the notion that he's always uh, gentle. <laughs> he is gentle, but there's times he crashes into our, our own stuff. He's coming after our idolatry. He's coming after our lack of faith. And he runs into it and he crashes into it. And, and it, it might not be the Jesus we're wanting to see, uh, the mild Jesus. Uh, certainly, in this case, it didn't seem like Jesus was mild. There's another case that I think of that's probably number one on my list for the most surprising things. It's Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 26. It's where Jesus is talking to the Syrophoenician woman that he, he, he went on a vacation. Jesus did with some of his disciples, went up the coast to Canaanite land, Gentile land, unbelievers. And, uh, and she, this woman, has a demon-possessed daughter. And what does she do? Just like the nobleman, she runs to Jesus for help. And she says, Jesus, can you help me? And then Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's stout. That really presents a problem for preachers like me. I mean, when you're reading this, you have to preach through the Bible and you come to this place and you go, maybe we could jump over that one. You know, maybe, maybe we can just steer clear of that one. Uh, I, I'm sure that if Jesus said that now, he, he might even get sued for defamation or something. I don't know. But Jesus says this, and he's driving a point home. He's wanting to see the tenacity of faith that we have. He's wanting to see how much do we really press in. How much will we really do and lean in to Jesus without being offended? You see, uh, one of the things that can happen is miracles can be short-circuited when we take offense and walk away. See, right when this man heard what Jesus said to him, that would have been exit stage left in a, in a lot of people's conversations. Nope, don't have to deal with that. I don't have to put up with that. I'm out of here. See, these surprising statements from Jesus, why does he do this? Why does he say those things? Simple. He wants you to grow. He's pushing you to grow even if it rattles your sensibilities, even if it messes with your dignity sometimes, is it worth it? I know that's 
happen to me on occasion. And again, I think the number one inhibitor of spiritual growth, it's living in offense. It's always being offended. That's just the thing that keeps us from really experiencing the things that God wants us to experience. Jesus is much more interested in your spiritual growth than he is in your emotional comfort. Did you know that? He's so much more interested in your spiritual growth than, than, than he is in our emotional comfort. Uh, do you know how easy it could have been, again, for this man just to, to walk away? And that's the point here. He didn't walk away. What he chose here was to pursue and lean in more to Jesus Christ. Because at this moment, these moments that we feel offended, you, your dignity or his divine intervention, which one do you want? Which one are you going to take? One will keep you from growing. The other will open the floodgate of growth and faith in your life. It's always your choice. It's always your choice. Jesus isn't going to make you do this. Uh, someone sent me a, a message the other day that, that I thought was spot on, and this is what they said. I don't know. Maybe they quoted it from someone else. But the message simply read this. There are those who are much more offended by the correction they receive than by the sin they committed. Think about that. Whoa! I'm going to say it one more time. I, I want to get that one. There are those who are much more offended by the correction they receive than they are by the sin they commit. That's something that I, I think causes me to put up a spiritual mirror in my own life. You know, to look into the Word of God, to look at the mirror of my own heart and ask these questions. Do you know what I think it comes down to with this nobleman? I think there's something that he really understands that probably a lot of people don't get. I mean, we think about Jesus, and, and we do. We should be thinking that, that Jesus loves us, that he cares for us, that Jesus, he, he's kind, he's gentle. We think all these things. But I'll tell you something, in that culture, in the Roman culture, that wasn't something you thought about, especially if you're a nobleman. It's almost like, well, he loves me, I, I don't really care. What I want and what I need is authority. Wow. I think what's happening here is he's going to Jesus because Jesus is the one that he recognized who's in charge. He's heard about it. So does Jesus have the first seat of authority in your life? Or do you? Who's the authority in our lives today? Who sits on that first chair, that first seat? Where do we go? Who do we listen to? This man understood something. He might not have picked up on the love of Jesus. He might not have picked up on the grace of Jesus. But I'll tell you one thing he picked up on. He picked up on the authority of Jesus. Because he heard that Jesus had authority over nature. He heard that Jesus had authority over the elements of nature. He had authority. And so what does he do when he needs help? Man, I'm going to Jesus. I need someone who has authority. Tell me, as a, as a nobleman, what quality in Jesus do you think appealed to him? I think it had to do with authority. If you were to ask me that question, what made him follow Jesus from Capernaum to Cana and back again? It was authority. It was the authority of Jesus. He's Roman. So Jesus can say things that surprise us and might not always be what we want to hear. Do you know Jesus will answer your prayer? He will. If you call on him, if you pray to him, he will answer your prayer. It just may not be an answer you want to hear. 
because he, he may say no when you want to hear a yes. He may say stay when you want to hear a go. He may say things like that. See, those are things that kind of put us in check a little bit. Why? Because he wants you to grow even when you are offended just a little bit. He wants you to grow. So here's the, the third and the last lesson for today, and, and that is this, that faith can be weak. It must be tested. Faith can be weak, but, but it must be tested. Remember what James says in James chapter 1, verse 7? He says, the trying of your faith is much more precious than what? Than gold. Yeah, the trying of your faith. He doesn't say here your faith is much more precious than gold. He says it's precious when it's tried, when it's tested, when it's robust, when it's strengthening, when it's getting stronger. So what does that mean when we think about that? I think... Um, I think about the stock market. I don't know. When you talk about gold and money and economy, I think about the stock market. You know, you're making investments. We're making investments right now. We're just having faith <laughs> that it's going to maybe get better. And, and I was thinking about this. Here, here's, here's what I think about this. Uh, the return on your faith investment is at its highest when it's being tested. Your faith stock is at its highest when it's being tested. That's when it's the most valuable. That's when it's more precious than gold. That's what James tells us. So when this nobleman came to Jesus, he had faith, but it was a weak faith. It wasn't a strong faith when he came. He just heard about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He's just now meeting Jesus. So this man had faith in what? He had faith in a power, in authority. He had faith in a power. And I, and I think that we hear that a lot. We've, we've, we've heard this before. I've been in circles where we talk about a higher power. Uh, we, we know that. We talk about that. I mean, people look at that power being the cosmos. The cosmos is good. The universe is great. The power of the universe. All of those kinds of things we, we hear. So oftentimes, these are people who usually don't care about the source of the force. I want to know what the source of this is all about. That's, that's me. See, the nobleman just wanted his son healed. He didn't care how it happened as long as it happened. So that's faith and power. That's where he's at. That's faith and power. So the nobleman started with faith and a greater power. So Jesus gives him a faith lift here. He gives him a faith lift, and he says to him, he lifts his faith from a trust in power to a faith in a promise. See how he does that? He's graduating him. He's pushing him along. In verse 50, verse, verse 50, he says, Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. That's an amazing promise. Someone said that to you in your time of desperation. The man took Jesus at his word. I love that. He's growing. He took Jesus at his word, and what did he do? It says he departed. He, he, he has his faith lifted here. The man says to Jesus, come, come with me. Go back to Capernaum with me. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to stay here. You go. You go where your son is and know that he's healed, know that he's alive, know that he's well. Just you take off and go. Have you ever noticed this habit that Jesus has? Jesus has this constant habit, and sometimes it's annoying to our flesh, but the constant habit is he always attaches your feet to your faith. 
Those two never are, are apart. They're never separate. Your feet and your faith are always connected. And he says here, you need to go. Put your feet in gear and get to your son. Your son lives. He's alive. And so when we're living our life, when we're following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, I think we have to know that there's always going to be a go involved. You're going to always take some part in this miracle that God has for you. Jesus knows that in order for our faith to grow, again, we need to go. Jesus will always include you in the miracle. We, we, we want to tell Jesus how this is going to go down. We want to tell Jesus what this is going to look like. I think this nobleman was no different than we are. He says, Jesus, this is how I envision this happening. I've got a plan. I followed you here. I know you're here. So you now come with me. Let's go. And Jesus said, I'm not following your plan. I have another plan. And that is you're going to have to trust in my word. You're going to have to trust in my promise. So why don't you go and I'll stay? Jesus says, no, <laughs> you go. You have to trust. You have to trust in my word. So who and where do you need to go to to experience a miracle? Because if God is doing something in your life right now and you're asking, you're praying for a miracle, then who do you need to go to? Where do you need to go to see that happen? The Bible says that we are, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. Ambassadors go. They go to the places that need to be mended, need to be healed. Here, Jesus says, you need to go where there is going to be healing. You need to go to the place, the, the place that I promised there would be healing. You need to go. And I think there are times I know in my life that I pray for a miracle and I want a breakthrough, but I'm always going to be asked to put my feet in gear and, and go to a place or go to a person, go somewhere and, 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 and see the fulfillment of the word of God, seeing God's word come true. You know, I find this so true, and I'm going to finish with this. I find this true about being a father. You know, over the years, I, I mean, I have a lot of years I can look back on now, and there are so many things I, you know, horribly failed at, didn't do well. But I think one thing that I, I might have gotten as a father, and that is go to your children. Go to them. Very simple. Go to them. Pursue them. Let them know you're present. Let them know you're around. Let them know you're in their life. Let them know that. You know, you, you, you might not have all the answers, and that's, I think, what dads are get really nervous about, is, well, if I go, I don't really have anything to say. That's fine. Just go. I love the story of the prodigal son. What does it say when he saw, the father saw his prodigal? The first thing it says is that he ran after his son. At that moment, words did not matter. What mattered is he was running to his son. Pursue your kids. Find ways to go after them. I, I, I think, I, and I'm hoping that my fatherhood will be defined by a, a going father. <laughs> a father who, who went, who was always going, who was always seeking his kids and his grandkids. That he put himself in places where there could be relationship. He could learn I think that's important for us. I don't know for sure, but maybe, just maybe, there was more healing to be done than just physical healing here by the Father going. 
I think there were other things that happened that we don't know about in this story. I don't know exactly how old the son was. I don't know, but can you imagine being sick and being healed and one of the first people you see coming back to you is your son or your father, the son seeing the father? I don't know. There's just some healing that I'm, pro- I'm thinking probably took place. And so here it is. Faith can be weak. It must be tested. Faith in a power, faith in a promise, and now there's faith in a person. And I'm going to finish with this one. A faith in a person. There's three times in this passage the word believe is mentioned. It's mentioned here. Believe in power. Signs and wonders. He said believe. Uh, believe in a promise. His word. Now you see faith in a person. If you look at verse 51 through 53, it says, While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that that was the exact time in which Jesus said to him, your son will live. And so he, I love this, here it is. And so he and his whole family says, believed. Not just in a power, not just in a promise, but they believed in Jesus. That word is so important. He, they believed in him. And that was the growth of this of this man's faith, and I think that it's often our growth as well. I love that phrase, and he himself believed in, and his whole household believed. Listen, miracles happen when, listen, yesterday it says here. Did you notice that one word where it said yesterday? So what happened, he, he heard that his son, he heard the words of Jesus saying, you're, you're, he's healed. What we understand here is he stayed the night. It, it was, he was on his way back when he met his servants. I think he probably had a good night's sleep. Why? Because he trusted in the promise. And then he sees the power of that person, Jesus Christ. You see what happens here? Wow. I mean, he, he, he didn't get on his horse and take off. He, he, he went to sleep that night, and he got up the next day and headed back to, Cain, or to Capernaum. And that's when he meets the servants, and they find out. What makes this testimony so strong to me is they start to compare notes. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a miracle happen, and you're looking at your, your life, and you're starting to put the clock together and the timing together, and you go, wait a minute. Wow. Wow. This happened when I was doing this and praying this, and maybe you've had that happen. Someone sent me a note this morning. I was kind of struggling a little bit, thinking through some things, and they sent me a text and said, man, I'm praying for you right now. And I went, there it is. That to me, are those, those are those small miracles that happen in our lives. They happen in our lives. They really do. And I'm going to ask that you do this. I'm just going to ask that you have your faith. Put yourself in places where your faith is challenged because... Um, there is a weakness in us, and there, there needs to be the testing of faith. I remember the time that my faith was the most tested is when I was, um, I was in a foreign country, and I was uh, uh, speaking at a, at a conference along with some other pastors, and what they did is they had all the pastors stand up front, and they had those people that needed to be healed come down, stand in line, get prayed for. And you know what I was thinking to myself? I said, man, this, this healing stuff's not my gig. I, I can teach. I can do other things. But I'm not really sure about this one. I mean, I had such weak faith. That's horrible. But I had weak faith. I, I, did it. I, didn't, I didn't think it could happen, at least not through me. 
I saw other people do it and it happened. But I'm thinking if, they, if, this, if whoever gets in my line, I feel bad for them, you know, because I don't know what's going to happen here. I really don't know what's going to happen here. And, and I'm, I'm looking at everybody and I'm thinking, man, and I looked about four rows back and, and there's a man who is obviously blind. His eyes are white with cataracts. And I kept thinking to myself, do not get in my line. Do I don't know. I can't, I don't know if I can pray. And I kept, you know, I'd pray. Like, I was so distracted. I'm praying for people here and I'm going, where's that guy at, man? I don't, you know, I don't want him. I don't want him. I can't, I, this, we'll all look foolish here, you know? And he ended up in front of me. Nowhere else to go. It's me and him. And I thought, Lord, we need to take my faith from being weak to being strong right now. I'm going to pray in your name and, and trust in your person that this happens. And so I prayed for him. I had my, I had my eyes closed because I didn't want to see anything. You know, it was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't know what's going to happen. And all of a sudden I, I heard him yelling and I heard people yelling. And, and literally what, what happened is the cataracts fell off. You know, they just kind of fell off. And I was going wow, who did that? You know, I mean, that's, and I knew Jesus had done it, but my faith was so weak to pray for someone like that. And that day, something changed in me and that I am one that God says, you're an agent. You need to go where I tell you to go. And you need to pray the way I ask you to pray. And I think that's what we learn from this man right here. Would you bow your heads? Father, I want to thank you today for your good work in our lives and what you're about, what you're up to, and we're just so grateful. I think with uh, what I want to do right now, just he heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. I, I want to invite anyone who, who, uh, who is hungering for growth in their own life. I mean, maybe, maybe for you it's that first step into knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus as your Savior, as your healer, as the one who has... Uh, died on the cross for your sins. That's what this is about. And if you today want to invite Jesus into your life, right where you are, if you would, just go ahead and lift your hand. I'm not going to call you out. I will not embarrass you. I just want you to lift your hand so that I can pray for you. And uh, we know that the salvation of Jesus Christ is sure. Now, it's going to take faith to do that. Always will take faith. In this case, your go might be lifting your hand. If you're at home, this go might be telling someone, what you're doing right now in your family or a friend. Let them know what you're up to right now. That's what the go may be. That's your part of the miracle of salvation. And God is good. God is good. Father, we want to thank you today for your good work in our lives. And we want to thank you today that you have given us a, a growing faith, that your intention for us is that we would continue to grow. We know that life can be hard. It drives us to you. We know that you say some surprising things, but your ultimate goal is that we would grow and that faith, our faith, can be weak. It needs to be tested. And so today we thank you for the lessons we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503 266 4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.